0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come.
1: My guest today is Elizabeth Pancati from Employ America. Uh, we are talking about unemployment insurance, you know, both in the context of the sort of current crisis, what it's done well, what it hasn't done well, the legislation of the CARES Act, but also in keeping with the sort of next four years theme, how can we reform this system so that it can work better in the future, so we can have more automaticity, so people can get their benefits easier, so we can keep in mind sort of modern work structures. So it's a very weedsy conversation, uh, but I think a really interesting one, UI is a super important lifeline when the economy is in crisis or when people's personal lives get difficult, but it isn't something like we talk about a ton in politics. Um, so I learned a lot from Elizabeth, and I think you will from this episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Elizabeth Pancotti. She is a senior advisor at, uh, she is a policy advisor. I made you senior. You could be senior um, at, at Employ America, which is a great group uh, working on full employment policy and it's all of its many dimensions. Uh, but I wanted to talk to her today about unemployment insurance, which is something that um, I think most of us don't think that much about in our sort of day-to-day. It's not, it's not the, the sexiest uh, federal program, but has been really important during this pandemic and I think will continue to be uh, going forward. So Elizabeth, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I will say that uh, I think right now there's a push among the UI nerds to, as you said, make UI sexy again. And so I will, I will plug that here in, uh, in that it, it definitely is a program I think we, we should be focusing on, especially now, but also in these times when, you know, 20 million people don't need the program.
1: Exactly. And, and I mean, ideally, I think we'll get into this. If we can make the program better when there isn't a crisis, then it can function better during a crisis, because it's, it's hard to sort of rebuild the boat while you're sailing across the ocean. Um, You know, at some point get, get into dock. I don't know. I need a better sailing metaphor. Um, I'm near the coast, but let's start like, it's something I've learned is that there's a lot of path dependency in America. So it's often useful to know, like, where did things come from? Like, what's the, what's the story of unemployment insurance in America?
2: Yeah. So the federal unemployment insurance program, America, which is not so different from how it is now, was created in the same, you know, in the social security act back in 1935. Um, There was actually a single state program before that in Wisconsin a few years prior in 1932, which is always like a fun fact that, you know, this is a a federal program, but actually states had started to think about it a little bit before uh, the federal government took action. Um, So it was created back then and and it was intended, you know, in the creation, each state would have their own system that they administer. And so that Right now, there are 53 systems. There are um, one for each state and then one for D.C., Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And then there's also like a railroad program, a program for former military and former federal employees. But typically we think about the 53 um, state and and territory systems. I
1: mean, I think that's the point, right? So that's sort of like a fateful choice, right? The the Social Security Act is starting up. They create uh, old age and retirement program As a federal unitary program, but unemployment insurance, because I guess a couple states had taken the lead already, becomes this kind of state-run thing with a federal element.
2: Yeah, I mean, so it was intended to be kind of a the system is sort of set up weird. So there's actually federal and state unemployment taxes in the current systems. There's FUDA, which is the Federal Unemployment Tax Act. And then there's also, and and like we kind of refer to those taxes as FUDA taxes. And then at each state, they collect SUDA taxes, state unemployment taxes. And there is kind of this credit scheme in the back uh, sense so that, you know, if you you pay into your state systems and each state taxes are a little bit different, you get credits as a business for whatever. You pay into those um, for your federal taxes. And so the taxes is about 6% overall, um, but each state has kind of a different tax scheme as well as a different benefit scheme, as well as a different administration scheme. So it really is, even though there's kind of this central UI system, it's a quite decentralized welfare program, unlike Social Security, even though they were in the same act.
1: But it has that kind of Social Security structure where there's a like a, an earmarked tax for it and we're your benefits at least on some level are related to to what you pay Right, it, it's 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 meant to have that kind different. of insurance
2: structures. Yeah, it's a little bit different though because they're not employee wage taxes. So, like for example, when you see your pay stub every week, you see a line item for your employee paid social security taxes, and that varies based on your earnings. Whereas for UI, it's an employer side tax, except for like two states that have a very small employee side tax that are relatively new. Um, but in the you know the vast majority of people won't ever see a dime that they pay into. The unemployment system. It's instead waged on employers. And in a lot of states, those taxes vary by uh, something called experience ratings. And that's if you're an employer that routinely lays people off and you're using the UI as an insurance. So, you know, if you're using the UI system as an insurance system for laying your workers off, you kind of get dinged on the end for paying few, you know, paying less into it than you pay out of it to your workers. And as a result, I think take up is much lower for unemployment rather, you know, compared to Social Security because people don't. Don't feel as entitled to those benefits because you don't see yourself as paying into them.
1: So the idea there is that the concern is that I don't know what, like an employer in a seasonal industry might be kind of routinely doing layoffs during the low season and telling people, no, it's okay, like you can collect your unemployment.
2: I think to some degree. I think it's also just like if you're an employer relying on, it's sort of like car insurance. If you routinely wreck your car and use your car insurance over and over, you pay a higher premium. And so it's the same sort of deal. If we think of this as an insurance system, you as an employer pay a higher premium to be able to use that system more.
1: Okay, right. Whereas like in Social Security, it's like if I'm healthy and I eat vegetables – they don't like tax me more.
2: <laughs> no, I guess I suppose that if you ate broccoli your whole life, we we might want to you know wage a higher social security tax on you because you might live until you're 103, and we'd pay a lot more social security benefits to you. But yeah, it's it's not that way. I mean, um, I'm very honestly.
1: unhealthy. Just to be clear, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing the right thing for my country.
2: <laughs> but yeah, so it is. I mean, I guess this sort of ties into. Uh, sort of the tax structure, and we can we can talk a little bit about that. But basically, if you the first, uh, it's about six percent of the first twelve thousand dollars that an employer pays a worker. And so, if a worker, you know worked over 12, you know, earned more than $12,000 from a single company, the taxes that would be paid on that worker into the system are $720 per year. And we're talking about an extremely low amount. I mean, this is this is pennies compared to other programs that employers pay into or that employees pay into. And it funds, you know, in typical times, that's totally fine. That funds all the benefits that are paid out. And when you hit a recession and 10 million people are claiming UI benefits for 26 weeks or longer, it does not even become close to the cost of the program. So
1: it's like if you assume the economy is humming along. I, I mean, people don't always think about this, but like people get laid off all the time, even even if there's not a recession. That's just that's life, right? Companies rise and fall; they, they they live and die. But the basic thinking is that in any given month, the vast majority of people will be working rather than unemployed. So a low tax can cover benefits for the sort of handful. Of people on UI. But then in a recession, that really changes.
2: Yeah. So I think in a recession, it's both tied to the fact that more people are unemployed and thus claiming these benefits, but they're also unemployed for much longer. If you look at like the average duration of unemployment during good times, you know, it might be 10 weeks. And if you look at it right now, 40% of workers have been laid off or have been unemployed for more than six months. And so if you're claiming those benefits for 26 weeks, which that's the kind of modal number of weeks that you're eligible for in any given state, there's a couple states with fewer. um, But like on average, you're eligible for 26 weeks of state benefits. And then there are some kind of federal programs that kick in. And the CARES Act, you know, was a big expansion of those federal programs and started some new ones. But, you know, really we kind of think is like the maximum duration of unemployment during good times is six months, and that's really when things start to change. So when you've been unemployed for six months or longer, you sort of face a much higher risk of dropping out of the labor force entirely, of facing discrimination in in future jobs. And so that six-month point is really pivotal in terms of both benefits and in terms of, like, the long-term effects of unemployment. And so as a result, if we think about paying benefits out, you know, the average benefit— uh, for unemployment is about three hundred and seventy-five dollars, and if you're paying that out for you know five or six weeks, while well, it takes someone during you know very tight labor markets to get a job. That is a very different benefit, you know, cumulative benefit amount than someone who is claiming three hundred and seventy-five dollars for twenty-six weeks or for thirty-nine weeks if federal programs are turned on. And so, you know, in normal times, it's totally fine to fund right, like as you said, this handful of people who are unemployed for a short duration of time. And in you know recessions, when ten million people are claiming for, in the Great Recession it was known as the nine and those were the people who were unemployed for all 99, you know, or still unemployed after the 99 weeks of um, state and federal benefits. And there were, you know, tons of them. And so when people are unemployed for a year and a half or for two years, you know, you could imagine that the, the cost of benefits is so much higher than that $720 could even begin to cover.
1: So, how does this work? So, for the federal government, it's just the deficit goes up. And that's one of our, our automatic stabilizers. Um, weeds weeds listeners should should know about that. Um, but but states can't can't do that. So do states have to cut benefits or it comes out of something else? Like what what happens to to state UI in these big downturns?
2: So the way that it works is that states can borrow from the UI trust fund, which is kind of the big federal fund where all of the taxes go. Um, And so they can, you know, go to the Department of Labor and say, hey, I can't pay out all my benefits. Can I have a loan to pay out my benefits? And there are, you know, loan terms associated with those. Um, Those sort of loan terms are actually quite interesting in that, you know, it's uh, actually tied to the food the tax credits that businesses receive, and so in fact businesses sort of take some of the hit of states borrowing, um, and so they'll pay a, a bit more in taxes, you know, in, in subsequent years while those loans are being paid off. Uh, right now, as of January fourth, there are forty-six billion dollars in outstanding trust fund loans shared by about twenty states, uh, and so you can imagine that that number is not going to go down anytime soon. And in the Great Recession, um, you know, th- I think thirty-five states. Borrow borrowed from this federal UI trust fund account. And uh, those loans were, I think the last state paid them off in 2018 or 2019. Like they had just been paid off. And so, you you know, these states take a really long time. And I think each state sort of has different rules of like, do they regard these balances against balanced budget laws and kind of all sorts of things. But in the aftermath of the Great Recession, so part of the the sort of post-Great Recession reforms for UI um, were that in exchange for reforming your UI system, because this, you know, what we're Seeing now, so so kind of on background uh, for this, you know, we saw huge wait times for payments. We've seen huge call wait times for people trying to get into the UI system in this recession, and we saw that, you know, also in the Great Recession. And so Congress said maybe we should, you know, do something about this and kind of incentivize states to modernize their UI systems. And so they gave them money in a in exchange for doing reforms in the years after the great recession we saw two things we saw a lot of states take that money and reform their systems and you know either change their it systems or change their benefit structures or change you know different different sorts of reforms that were that were allowable for that grant money Conversely, we saw a lot of states roll back their benefits and roll back the funding for their state UI offices and roll back the staffing for their state UI offices. So Florida is a really good example of this. In 2011, there were huge reforms to the Florida UI system that cut benefits and cut eligibility and cut funding and cut taxes for businesses. And as a result, if you remember earlier this year, or I guess now last year, uh, Florida's UI system didn't really function in a time of great downturn. And so if you think about, like, the response to our UI system didn't work, and now we're in a lot of debt, the response is not to pay off that debt by cutting UI benefits. And in fact, there's, you know, research kind of suggests that cutting benefits really does nothing for the debt that your UI system is in. So...
1: yeah the these administrative issues i mean i think have loomed very large in people's people's heads but the basic structure right so you you get a different amount of benefits depending on what state you're in and and depending on how much you were earning previously right so there's like a a concept of replacing some share of the wages that you were earning before right it's again like an insurance style system rather than a flat payment to people. Um, I know it's hard to summarize because there's 53 different programs, but like what's what's the basic lay of the land?
2: Yeah. So in the vast majority of states, workers will get 26 weeks and the kind of average replacement rate, as you put it, so kind of the percentage of your weight of your pre-layoff wages covered or replaced by your UI benefit is kind of on the on the average of about 40%, 45%. Um, you know, in practice, we know that many people are not able to access UI. And so if you like took the percentage of people, if you like included the zeros for the people who can't access UI, it would be, it would be downweighted. So for the people who can access UI, you know, kind of 35 to 45% um, on average throughout the country is, is sort of what you're replaced. Now, Interestingly, what we learned this year is that that replacement rate is not so easy as having like literally a, a rate that you just multiply your pre-layoff wages. You know, UI systems are not built to just say, okay, we know what your salary was before you got laid off. Let's multiply it by 0.35 and we'll cut you a check for that amount. If it were that simple, we we would have had a very different CARES Act. Um, but, you know, states introduce these like little technical math things, which like you know, piss all the nerds off <laughs> where it just like you, so there's this thing called an uh, your base period earnings. And so that uses like some of the quarters of the last year in which you were employed. And so some states kind of just like manipulate that base period to where, you know, it would be, if it would be more advantageous for you to use like the fourth quarter out versus just the three quarters out from your layoff, you know, you might get a higher benefit. And some states allow you to like use what's called an alternate base period where you can like kind of change the the look-back period for your wages, and some states do not. And that can make a huge difference for some people depending on, you know, what your employment situation looked like before you got laid off. Um, Another thing is that there's usually a maximum benefit and so that is, you know, if you're making $500,000 a year and you get laid off, you are not going to get 35, 40% of your wages covered by UI. There's kind of a maximum benefit in each state. And that really varies by state. In some states, it's, you know, three or $400. And in some states, it's $1,100. And so there, there's no real consensus over what that should be. And, you know, some, you could say that state legislature set those. So you could say that like maybe they take into account you know, what the cost of living is in that state. Or maybe they take into account that they'd like to save money on benefits. I think it like, it really depends on the state. So like Massachusetts has a very generous maximum benefit, whereas, you know, Arizona and Florida have very not generous maximum benefits.
1: But I guess the theory would be, I mean, at some point on the income spectrum, right, you're dealing with people who probably have more savings because, because higher income people save more and more um, access to, to credit. Right. As a way to get through, because there's a big difference between, you know, if you if you need to ride out a rough patch with like a home equity loan versus a payday lender who's going to like ruin your life forever. So, it, I mean, it makes some sense. But so you, you alluded earlier to people who are not able to access unemployment benefits. Is that just administrative difficulty or is it that there's just like large categories of people who are not? Who are, like, genuinely not eligible?
2: Both. So I guess let's talk about the second group first. Um, so that group was largely addressed this year by PUA, or the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which was part of the CARES Act. And so that program was monumental in kind of extending UI benefits to a huge percentage of the workforce. And I mean, if you look at the PUA numbers, clearly a lot of people were excluded by regular UI. And so the people who are typically excluded from UI are people who are either correctly or incorrectly classified as independent contractors or gig workers, but also part-time workers or low-wage earners or um, job seekers. Seekers, you know, people who have graduated high school or college or are looking for a job. There's kind of all of these groups who or people who don't have enough employment history. You know, if you just if you graduated college in May and you got laid off from your job in August, you know, you might not have earned enough to be able to claim unemployment over the last few months. Right. So to and qualify,
1: so- you have to have had a job. You have to have worked it long enough to have paid over some threshold. Employers don't want to pay the taxes if they can get away with it. Right. So,
2: (laughs) yeah, I mean, they pay the taxes on your wages no matter what. Right. Um, Okay. So, let's say that you graduated college in May 2020 and you somehow were able to find a job in May 2020. And then that job said, oh, actually, there's a second round of business closure orders. We're not going to be able to operate in October. So, they said, Corona's gotten too bad. The governor's shutting us down and they lay you off in October it's very possible that you will not have met the kind of work history requirements or the earnings requirements in your state to qualify however let's say that you had like an on-campus job you're all four years in college and then you kind of float into this job after you graduated you would have enough work history to qualify for benefits and kind of the hit that your employer would take to their experience rating it, it could be in some states it could be your previous employer in some states it could be your current employer it kind of depends on on the state but yeah so it's less about like have you paid into this system and more about, have you been around long enough that we consider you a worker who like deserves benefits? And that varies a lot by state. But
1: also if you're, if you're a contractor, right, like for social security, you still pay the tax and still get benefits, but for unemployment, you don't, right? Like if you're,
2: yeah, it's not a FICA tax. I do this
1: podcast as a contractor now. and And if they, if they lay me off, I'm, I'm screwed.
2: Yes. So if you, you know, it kind of, we call them like 1099. So if your income is from a 1099 instead of a W-2, a traditional employee, on that 1099, when you file your taxes, you pay into the FICA system. So you pay into Medicare and Social Security. You importantly do not pay into unemployment insurance. And in some states that have adopted paid leave, you can pay into the state paid leave system. I don't think there's a single state where you can pay into the unemployment insurance system. And so that, so PUA, for example, all those gig workers who are on PUA, they're not paying into the PUA system. And they're they're paying federal taxes and it's coming out of a federal budget, but they're not specifically paying an unemployment tax to access PUA.
1: Right. All right. Uh, let's take a break. And then uh, POA is a good time to, to pivot into the CARES Act as a whole.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. dot wcom slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds.
1: So oftentimes during recessions, Congress will like extend the duration of unemployment benefits. Um, but with the CARES Act, they did something different, right? And they made the benefits, uh, like they gave you more money and they created this, this PUA program so that people who would not normally be eligible could get the benefits um, and why like why did that happen if there wasn't there wasn't a ton of public discussion about it
2: no I mean so I think, if we, it's very weird to like remember back to those first couple weeks of March, but if we think back to like the before times, right? No one paid attention in January, February, and for years, no one paid attention on Thursday mornings at 8.30 a.m. to the jobless claims release. So every week on Thursday mornings, DOL releases the number of people in each state who have claimed unemployment in the previous week. And no one really pays attention to those. I mean, I like, I started watching industry recently and there's like a funny quip where um, one of the traders on the floor built a model to like predict uh, the number of jobless claims, which is so funny to me because like really, you know, maybe traders were paying attention, but like normal people weren't paying attention to jobless claims before this. And then we hit kind of the second week of March and jobless claims hit, you know, millions a week. And we got hammered with six, five, four million claims per week. Now we're still at a million claims per week, you know, almost a year into this. And so I think at that, like when Congress realized like, okay, there's business closures everywhere. Hospitals are, you know, super bad, you know, everything's shutting down and millions of people are unemployed, you know, there were kind of two responses. One was direct cash relief. So then we got $1,200 checks. And the other was like, okay, well, all of these people are unemployed. The replacement rate for their wages is very low. It's 35, 45%. That's not going to be able to, you know, keep food on the table or keep a roof over your head. And at the time, I think there was a big concern about, like, increased expense. Like, we were all spending, you know, a lot more money at the grocery store because, like, nobody could go anywhere. And there was, you know, school. schools are closing, so we didn't have school lunches. There was a lot of stuff. So... You know, Senator Wyden and and Senator Sanders and a couple other senators got together and they said, we should do Dole, which was really cool. And they said, you know, in addition to these kind of 300, you know, on average, the weekly payment is about $375. And on average, the weekly wages for American workers are about $975. And they said— if you worked 40 hours a week at $15 an hour, which is what we think the minimum wage should be, that's $600. And, you know, $600 again, the magic number of, like, let's just give everybody who's out of work who, like, should have been entitled to their wages, who, which were probably too low before the pandemic to begin with. They said, let's give them 600 bucks on top of their payment. For context, in the Great Recession, we gave them $25 a week. So, I mean, this was a huge, huge program.
1: And, and so, and part of that thinking, right, is there's a traditional sort of, push and pull among economists in thinking about unemployment insurance in a recession, where on the one hand, if you want to stimulate the economy, it's really good targeting to give money to people who lost their jobs because, you know, they they have expenses that they need to make, and otherwise they're going to cut them and you get in this sort of you know, uh, downward spiral of, of spending and incomes. Uh, but there's also always a school of thought that says, well, you know, if we make the benefits too generous, um, you know, people are going to hang out, play video games, you know, order some pizzas, um, and we want them to go take jobs, right? And, and so, you know, I mean, people, it's just a perennial argument that sort of happens. But one of the things about the pandemic was that, I think there was a sense that, you know, jobs were being shut down for public health reasons.
2: Yeah, we wanted people to stay home and play video games. Like, we didn't want them, you know, at their, like, service jobs getting infected or infecting other people.
1: We sort of relaxed that concern and made the program much more generous to people uh, to the point where, I mean, a lot of people ended up with sort of higher weekly take-home pay than they would have had at a job that might pay eight or nine. $10 $10 an hour, which, yep. um, you know, was kind of weird.
2: I mean, I don't, I think it was certainly weird. It was super cool. I think there's kind of this, there's a difference between stabilizing the economy and stimulating the, the economy. And this is like a very good picture of that. And so in stabilizing the economy, we made sure that people were able to pay their rent. We made sure they were able to put food on the table. We made sure they were able to afford medications, all that sorts of stuff. Right. And we said, if you've got an extra 100 or $200 now that we've given you, you know, this topped off payment, you know, go buy an Xbox, go get takeout, stimulate your local economy. And if you recall, if we look at consumer expenditure data from the months where the $600 was in place, it was amazing. I mean, if you compare that to like when the Great Recession happened and we took a huge dip, it was truly fantastic to say, not only did we stabilize the economy and not allow this like huge drop off and you know, Consumer expenditures are 70% of GDP. Like, if you lose that, you kind of lose the economy. And we didn't lose that. And, you know, we said, you can't evict people. You can't, you know, turn utilities off. Then they were continuing to pay their rent. They were continuing to kind of, you know, shop at grocery stores, all that sorts of stuff. Like, it was truly a very good policy at both stimulating and stabilizing American households. Uh, and, and the economy. The problem is that when it expired in July, we didn't do anything. Well, President Trump enacted this kind of $300 thing for a couple of weeks, but you know, then from you know mid October, so that $300 program was six or seven weeks depending on your state. Um, so in mid October, that ran out, and from October to this week, we did nothing to top off those three or four hundred dollar payments, and at the same time, people were running out of their benefits. So we can, I mean, we can talk about kind of benefit extensions, which are a pretty normal part of recessionary, you know, reaction policy. But we didn't top off those benefits at all. And so people went from making maybe 110% of their wages to making 30 or 40%. And that's a very big cliff to fall off.
1: I mean, if you you want to look up, you know, some like bad takes uh, that I did, (laughs) um, you know, in, in the spring, right, I had this incredible concern that the economy was going to take one big hit sort of from the virus, and then there was going to be a huge secondary hit as everybody who lost their jobs had to cut back all of their spending, right? But like the great success of this through October is that it was not like a good time economically because obviously there was this, pandemic going on, uh, but you really didn't see that secondary wave, that, like, businesses that were not closed, right, like Home Depot and Walmart and Amazon, like, they all did, and, you know, like, the local hardware store across the street from me, like, they all did crazy business, uh, because people did, in fact, have money, and they were able to go out and, and do things, and then in the late fall, um, you know, it really started to, to collapse, although hopefully coming back.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. We we got ADP jobs, so the jobs Jobs Friday is this week, and there'll probably be a decline on Friday. Um, And I think you know, economists. I had been kind of shouting from the rooftops. Other economists have been shouting from the rooftops of like, okay, if you do nothing for businesses and if you do nothing for workers, things will only get worse. And winter, you know, winter was coming. Patios were shutting down. Indoor dining was shutting down. Business closure orders were happening. You know, everything was getting worse again. And we're like, we're seeing that now. And it's you know, it's very scary to think. Think that we all of this, you know, had we had we had some sense of urgency kind of in October or in July when this was happening, we could have really avoided a lot of the downturn that's going to happen, you know, the downturn that we've seen for the last two months and the downturn that we're gonna probably see for another two months before, you know, as we kind of see this new stimulus package kick in and before vaccine you know stuff is like really ramped up.
1: So what's 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 in the new package, right? Because then finally at the end of the year, um the politics worked and Congress came together to, to extend some extra unemployment what's what's in the new what's in the new deal
2: yeah I mean I think maybe it was Christmas I don't know Andy Stetner from the Century Foundation I put out this report to say that 12 million people were going to fall off a cliff the morning after Christmas and I would like to say that like you know maybe we we kind of kicked it into their heads but like I don't know how they didn't realize this was a problem before that report. So right before Christmas, they they passed this bill, and then right after Christmas, you know, delayed, Trump begrudgingly signed it. Um, and so in the new bill, there are $300 a week. It's the same top-off that was in place, but now cut in half, um, and an extension of 11 weeks for the programs that kind of extend benefits or for PUA that um, expands benefit eligibility. And so rather than having a maximum of uh, 39 weeks on any given program, now there's a maximum of 50 weeks. And now to compare that, at this point in the kind of Great Recession, the peak of the Great Recession, when the most people were, they were continuing claims of unemployment. So the, the people who are claiming unemployment um, was about 10 million. And we're double that right now. And we are at half the number of weeks that were extended extending the Great Recession. And so, you you know, an 11-week extension was great. The kind of previous draft of the bill, uh, the Manchin-Romney proposal that had been talked about kind of two weeks before this iteration that passed um, would have extended it a couple more weeks. We were looking at, you know, 14 or 16 weeks and, and now we got down to 11. I would hope that with the results of this week's Senate elections and with um, Biden and, and Harris coming in, we'll see another extension of those things. But to date they expire in mid-March. So right. So this
1: then becomes the question, right? I'm glad we, we have this after the Georgia Senate results are in. President-elect Biden has committed in a non-specific way, I think, to a sort of further COVID relief package happening. Um, I think he
2: did, He did like, commit to $2,000 checks, at least. Like, maybe not to a whole package, but he did commit to $2,000 no, checks no, no, no. Yes, we sent yes, John and that. Rafael to the Senate. Yes, the, the, the,
1: the checks were now at a point... Well, this is actually relevant because it constrains what you can do because yes. at, at this point, if Democrats don't deliver $2,000 checks, um, they're all going to look like idiots. So... <laughs>
2: I mean, McConnell looks like an idiot for not delivering them like right before the Georgia Senate election. So, yes, I think they'd look they'd look pretty dumb if they didn't do it now. I don't think there's a chance of that. Like, I think, you know, Joe Manchin got on board with two thousand dollar checks. Right. Like, I think we're getting them.
1: Right. And so this has always been a thing in Congress and in the wonk zone. Right. We're like there's. There was this whole genre of, like, viral tweets where people would say, like, ah, oh, there's a pandemic and people are starving. And, like, all Congress did was give us $1,200. And if you take one thing away from this episode, it's that, like, all Congress did for people who were continuously
2: employed. And for people who weren't employed. Like, people who weren't employed also got the checks. Like, they did it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, so right, right. No, but I'm saying that, like, if you, in fact,
1: lost your job – Congress did a whole other thing. Right, and then oh, that expired. Yeah. So, I mean, there so were I problems, there were administrative like,
2: problems. Yeah, so I think I did like a back of the envelope calculation. And if you were a person who got the modal number of weeks from your state, so twenty six weeks, and then you got all the federal top off programs, and you got all the federal extension programs, and you were laid off at the very beginning, you have got like thirty thousand dollars. Right, like that's a lot more than just $1,200. Like those tweets make me very mad because it wasn't just twelve hundred. And also, we should take credit for the Superdole. Like the Superdole was sick, and we should like definitely take credit for it. But yeah, it's very frustrating. But on the other other hand, I mean, in talking to unemployed workers who are now organized, thankfully, and who are like really hounding Mitch McConnell and 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 Senate Democrats and saying, you know, like you have to do it again. And I mean, they are in a big part. I mean, the reason why we got the second bill, I'm sure, in that like people, I'm sure, congressional staffers and members were just so sick of their phones and their you know emails being hounded by these people, rightfully so, like thankfully. Um, but there were a lot of access problems. You know, in Georgia, we saw data this week that said that. of claims once you're approved. So let's say the way that kind of, I guess we didn't talk about this, but the way that you apply for UI is you get laid off, you file an application with your state. They determine if you were in fact laid off or if you were fired or if you quit, you know, they kind of adjudicate your claim. And that can take, that's supposed to take less than three weeks, but in many states it takes longer, especially now. So you do that, they determine that you're eligible for UI, and they give you a benefit amount that you're eligible for. And then, you know, it takes a week or two for you to get that payment. And you're compensated for, like, all of those weeks in which you are waiting. And normally, for most states, it's about two, two and a half weeks from, like, layoff to first payment. Now, in Georgia, from that benefit determination point, so 25% of claims take longer than 70 days to say you're eligible. And then 86% of claims take longer than 50 days to pay those out. And so you could be waiting 120 days to get your first payment in a state like Georgia. And it's not, I mean, it's all states, right? Like there's a great map um, where three, I think three or four states are meeting the like federal regulations on timeliness decision and payments. Like no states are getting money out the door within 21 days the way that they're supposed to. And so it's very possible that, you know, millions of people waited 40, 50, 60, 70 days for those payments to go out. And that's only if you were able to access it. I mean, we know that claims were denied. We know that claims were lost. We know that backlogs were massive. We know, I think Heather Long reported this week that a million people have still not received their unemployment claims and they've been unemployed for, you know, six months or longer. It was not without its faults. That said, you know, that PUA expanding to millions of people who wouldn't have been eligible and that FPUC kind of $600 top-off were like truly very important, very expensive and very necessary programs that were much more generous than the $1,200 checks.
1: Right, and and this is just going to be the sort of thing going forward is that doing something like the Checks Act will have a... $350, $400 $350, $400 billion price tag, and it'll be cool. I mean, it's an election promise. I think it's good for the economy. It's nice for people. Um, but that's not enough for a person who's lost their job no. and needs continuing income until full recovery is underway, which, you know, we hope will happen in April, but might not, right? I mean, it's this is one of these things where Congress sets these deadlines And they're sort of guessing about what the course of-
2: Oh, it's completely arbitrary. There is no rhyme or reason. It's like, okay, we have a number that we want to stick to, or we have like a nice pretty date. Like they, so this is like, you can tell they're arbitrary because for the CARES Act dates, they put them on the 31st of the month, except for unemployment weeks end on Saturday or in New York on Sunday. And so instead of setting the end dates to like the days when unemployment weeks actually end, they just picked the end of the month and it actually screwed people out of an additional week of benefits. And so like, you can tell they're arbitrary for that reason. But yes, they are essentially, I mean, I think when this was all happening in March, when we were kind of doing the CARES Act, nobody thought we would still be in this in December. I mean, we all got sent home from our jobs for two weeks. Like nobody thought this was really gonna be a, you know, year, year and a half long thing. That said, I mean, I think maybe December 31st was like a pretty generous timeline in their minds at that point. By, you know, I don't know, June or July, we like certainly should have realized that that wasn't going to be enough. And they didn't do anything until December 25th, right? Like,
1: so I think, I feel like the way this could go bad is they start with a headline number, then they yes. subtract what the checks are going to cost. Yeah. Then you see what's left.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think we should have headline up. Num- like, I think, I think you wrote this. Right. <laughs> I was like looking through clips the other day and I talked to you back in July and you said, you know, what would the economy need? And I said, I don't know, one to two trillion at a minimum for a second bill. And like, I don't know, someone else like Mark Sandy or someone said something higher than me. And I think like- it's that like these these arbitrary things where we're like, okay, we'll spend a, a trillion dollars now. And if we need more, we can always come back. And it's like, you can't, you can't come back. Like in Aura, in the Great Recession, we didn't come back and that was the problem. And here
1: we had a month's on, right. So what they need to do- If you want to do, do, I
2: mean, if we want to pass a trillion dollar bill every month, like instead of doing a $12 trillion bill at the outset, my, you know, go for it. But the reality is we're not going to do that. You're going to get maybe one more attempt- and that's it. And so to say that, like, there's a cap, you know, if Joe Manchin comes in and says, I won't vote for anything more than $1 trillion and you subtract $400 billion off that for a new round of checks, you know, it's kind of saying screw you to schools and to hospitals and to transit systems and to jobless workers and to businesses of, like, we've got this, like, small pot of money, fight over it. And it's like, we don't have to have small pots of money. Like, we could have very big pots of money. <laughs> right. You, you need,
1: so, you know, Joe, if you're out there, it's, you You need to pick triggers that are based on some kind of conditions. And then if you want the overall price tag to be low, just tell people the conditions will be met quickly. And I, know, mean, I mean, not that's,
2: <laughs> I mean, yes. Okay. If we, I mean, if we want to have the conversation about trigger scores, it's an important one. So I, I mean, I know like this podcast, certainly, you know, listeners certainly are no stranger to automatic stabilizers and employ America. That is like you know, we have like two sticks, no Judy Shelton and please do triggers. And my, my colleagues are going to laugh when they listen to this, but I mean, that like really is the, like when people ask me what EA is, that's like, you know, pretty much, it sums it up. But I think for automatic stabilizers, especially in UI, we talked about it when Heroes was happening at the end of May. So when House Democrats got together and they said, we're going to do this massive $3.5 trillion package, we and, and you know tons of other people said, please don't set an arbitrary end date to these unemployment provisions. Please say until the labor market looks like it did in January when it was tight and wages were growing and employment was like, I mean, we were still like somehow adding to it, even though economists would have said we were at full employment. And we said, please keep these provisions in place until we can get back to that kind of labor market. And they didn't do it because it costs too much. Like you've got people like Richie Neal on Ways and Means and Nancy Pelosi and like all these people who are trying to like take a big coalition of people who have differing demands and they struck triggers because it's too expensive. So you say like, so earlier you said, you know, Joe, if you're listening, tell people that triggers will be, you know, the economic conditions will be met quickly. And that's true. Like stimulus will make them be met more quickly. That said, the CBO doesn't, you know, that's not how the CBO scores them. And the CBO is end-all, be-all if you're kind of a a voter like Joe Manchin on the floor, even if you're someone like Nancy Pelosi. You know, if you care about the price tag of a bill, the CBO score is, is important. And triggers are very expensive when unemployment and the number of people on UI is high. And right now, that's true. And so as a result, like... I don't know where triggers stand, but yeah. it would be smart. It's smart policy. Like it's very stupid to just keep kicking the can down the road. My, my message, because this is
1: the problem, right? Like this is why they need to do triggers, is that they will all tell you while the bill is happening, well, we'll come back and do more if we need to. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, it depends on the vagaries of, of Congress brain. But that means you are saying, that your bill will cost more than the headline number like you are promising me right that like if the unemployment rate is still really high we're going to come back and do more help so like bill do do the trigger anyway that's my that's my summary
2: yeah i mean so we like 180 members of congress signed on to this letter to say like we should do triggers and then we didn't get them so like i think like there is consensus among a large part of the democratic party that triggers are smart policy And yet, when we get to building a bill, the people in the room say, even though it's smart, it's not politically feasible.
1: I just, I I had a very vexing conversation with Nancy Pelosi's team about this. And I don't know. Um, You know, the CBO, you know, it says what it's going to say. But their interest rate forecasting is terrible. And sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, so let's let's take a break. And, and I want to talk about, like, reform in a bigger picture sense.
0: Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought.
1: The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options, to find something super customized, and just make it feel fun.
0: This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. So
1: um, you mentioned this. Uh, One of the big things, right? I, I mean, I think one reason why the authors of CARES didn't turn into, like, big credit takers about the bill is that so many people had such frustrating experiences trying to get benefits. And also some of this stuff was just like goofy. Like you you alluded to this earlier, but there's not like a spreadsheet somewhere where you can just increase the replacement rate. Um, They had to do this slightly crude numerical thing instead of just saying, who are bumping everybody up to 100 or 95 or 105 or whatever it is you want to do.
2: Yeah, we couldn't do a percentage top-off. We had to do a flat rate top-off.
1: Right, Um, which is just weird. And I don't, it has something to do with COBOL.
2: Yeah, uh, so (laughs) essentially many of the state systems are antiquated because they've been underfunded for decades. And as a result, when when the programs were written in the 80s and 90s using a coding system that I think you would struggle to find, you know, you can't walk into Apple or Amazon and find coders for these systems. uh, Or you can't walk into Silicon Valley and find, you know, 25-year-old engineers to go help you. And so as a result, they said, you know, the thing that we could do is a flat rate amount. The thing that we can't do is a replacement rate. And so that's how we ended up with a flat rate amount. But it, like you said, underscores kind of the fact that these systems are in shambles and have been for many years. And we knew this coming out of the Great Recession. And we didn't, you know, do broad structural reform. Instead, we gave states a bit of money to do a couple of things. And, and look where it got us. And so like states are states
1: are terrible in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I
2: don't think we should let states do anything. <laughs> no, I mean like this uh, th- this is like the
1: the lesson of all of these things is that you know, politics goes back and forth, right? Like there's a pendulum, different people are in power at different times, and when a moment arises to say, okay, well we want to make unemployment insurance better. If the way you structure that is you give financial incentives to states to make the programs better, then you're just sort of hoping that that money will arrive in state treasuries at a time when whoever is elected in that state, like, wants to make it better.
2: Right. You hope that, like governors look like Gavin Newsom and state, you know, UI departments look like Julie Sue. And instead you get, you know, places like Florida where the governor would, you know, probably hopes that the UI system didn't exist entirely and guts the whole thing, right? Like it is truly a, a game of luck, you know, like, so places like Massachusetts and California do really great things, except we have 53 UI jurisdictions and they do not all do great things. And it really is just like a game of chance. Right. And, you know, especially as a worker, like as a worker, you're just taking a chance of like, do I live in a good state or not?
1: Right. And a lot of these people, I mean, they 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 should have you should respect them to the extent that you recognize that Rick Scott and Scott Walker and some other people like this. They actually have like a very principled objection to unemployed workers getting Benefits like
2: yes, they like uh, fundamentally do not believe that it should be a counter cyclical policy that like stabilizes the economy. Like they don't think it should exist, or they don't think it should be anywhere close to as quote unquote generous as it is. Right, and
1: you've seen this again and again. I mean, you saw it with with Lindsey Graham in the Senate. You saw it with Rick Scott when he was governor. Again, when he's a senator, like this view is incorrect, but it's not insincere. And so when you put yeah. the administration into their hands, like, they, they take action. Like, they don't— Yeah, I
2: mean, it's like a philosophical, like, view of these programs. Like, it really has nothing to do about strategy. Maybe it has something to do about money, but it really is, like, a fundamental view of what these programs should look like and who they should serve.
1: And, and you know, Casey, Casey Mulligan, who worked in the Trump White House for a while, and he wrote a book about the Obama era. I mean, and he puts forward the view that people's ability to access social assistance programs worsens recessions uh, by essentially making them lazy. And I don't
2: know a single unemployed worker out there right now who's lazy. Like, they're all calling Mitch McConnell 24 hours a day and, like, more empowered to them.
1: <laughs> but critically, if you're a member of Congress and you don't believe that, Like, you need to do something.
2: And I think there are actually, like, we talk about Senate Dems doing things, but I actually think there are quite a few members of the Republican Party, especially in the Senate, who agree that, like, UI should exist and it should exist for the exact kinds of workers who are intending to help right now, and it should be more generous than it is. And, like, I mean, they voted for the CARES Act that had the $600 top-off. They voted for this current bill that had a lower top-off. Like, I don't think that it's, like, a... It's I don't think it's like a Republican Democrat issue. It's like this like weird philosophy issue that some it seems like, you know, Republicans seem to ascribe to more often than not. But that said, like I don't think right. this is inherently about Republican governors. No,
1: I agree. I mean, it's a it's a it's a factional sort of perspective.
2: Yeah. In, in fact, like Charlie Baker of Massachusetts and you know, like from prior like we have Republican governors in Massachusetts and and you know, their system is is one of the most generous. Right. so
1: can we can we just like redo this and make it a federal system?
2: Um, I don't know, you'd have to ask uh, a couple people in the Senate if they vote for that. But I think, I mean, so, so this is my big plug for like Michael Bennett's UI plan, um, which, which notably does not federalize the system, but it does that really, really, really important kind of I don't even want to say baby steps. They're in fact, giant leaps. I mean, the replacement rate would be increased to like 70%. We'd have full funding for federal extended benefits, which currently it's half and half between the states. We'd set that all states have to do 26 weeks of unemployment. We'd bring in, you know, a job seekers loan. I mean, there's a, we'd have a dependent allowance. There's a ton of really incredible reforms that you're like, wait, how does that not currently exist? And that said, it doesn't federalize the system. And so I think, you know, so it, that plan was actually written right before the pandemic. And and in 2016, the Center for American Progress, the National Employment Law Project and the Georgetown Center on Inequality and Poverty got together and wrote this big reform of like, here's how to fix UI. And it, it's got triggers, it's got everything. I mean, It's really got a wish list. But they also did not call for federalization. And I think this particular moment, if like, if there was ever one, this is the time where I think we could like, one, get the support for federalizing given what we saw over the last nine months. And two, the moment where like unemployed workers are organized, you know, there's like policy rationale for it. There's a budget rationale for it. And we have the votes. And so I think it's like, it's really going to be on now, Senate Finance, Chair Wyden and, and members to kind of put a plan together that, you know, if it doesn't federalize the whole system, it certainly federalizes administration and eligibility and benefits.
1: I mean, and I think when you, when you think about the technical challenges that states are facing, right, because th- there is the sort of ideological issues, but the the technical issues with the software are real. And if you are going to need to sort of redo the work right, as one of your aspirations.
2: Yeah, do it once, not 53 times. Right. Make unemployment.gov. Don't pay Deloitte to give 50 states the same website. You know, like, why do we need to sign 50 contracts with 10 different consulting firms to build the same exact website in 53 jurisdictions when we could pay one to build unemployment.gov or do it internally? Like, let's let's do away <laughs> with the consulting firms in, in, in entirety and, like, do tell I? the Department of Labor to build unemployment.gov. Like, it's so much cheaper. Like, there's actually a conservative argument to this of like it's less redundant and more efficient to have one.
1: Right, and I mean that would be you know my my high minded technical pitch, right? That like after the Affordable Care Act website fiasco, they built this group F sixteen I think it's called. There's like an in house website building. Yes. Capacity in the federal government. Like, give them a big new signature project to do. Yeah,
2: I mean, or so the U.S. digital response team like stepped in and like D- Eugene Scalia deployed the DOL's IT team to like help out states. And like none of that needed to happen if we just had one centralized website instead of having a million software developers, some of which who were unemployed, like trying to help states recode their COBOL systems like that doesn't need to happen. And I think it's like it's really important for Senate Democrats to realize that that is an incredibly stupid decision to do exactly what we did in 2010 to give states money to kind of fix their websites, like, that's not going to fix the problem. Like, it's like, it's like kicking the can, I don't, it's not even kicking the can down the road, it's just like wasting money.
1: Right, and you know, at some point, right, it's like some future podcast in the 2060s should not need to go back to the 1935 decision to make this a state program. Like, there's no, there's no good reason for to think that local variance in this, in administration of unemployment benefits is helping anybody.
2: So there is an argument for this. I think it's like not good, Uh, but the argument is that some states could innovate. And so if you take the right of states to innovate away, then, oh no, the world will implode. But honestly, I do not think we need states to innovate new ways to screw over the poor. And that is exactly what they're doing. But like you lost, like we gave you a science fair. You did a bad experiment. We are taking your science class away.
1: Uh, but, you know people people move people, lots of people don't yeah. live in the state they work in
2: yeah this is a whole problem right now is like claims get denied because of like i live in dc you live in dc it's very possible that like half of our workforce doesn't live in dc or that like we're a very transient population and so is the tri-state area and also a lot of people work remote now like it's crazy that like your residence is tied to your employment so inherently in the ui system which is so antiquated like it just hasn't updated with our labor market and same with like gig workers not being employed like it just hasn't, it's stuck in like a 1970s employment model where, you know, you go to work every day and you go to your one job and you come home. And like that's not what our that's not what our economy looks like anymore.
1: And especially if if more people work remotely on a sort of semi-permanent basis, which I mean, I think a lot of people think, right, that this technology we've been using uh, will be, will be sort of employed more broadly. You know, I mean, I think there's a a lot of thought that in the future, there may be even sort of more remote work, and it would be a shame to sort of next recession down turn out that like a huge share of the population has got like an incredibly confused unemployment situation because they've been, you know, in three different States or, or something like that. Um, so
2: yeah, I think it's like a combination between remote work, like an increase in like multiple jobs an increase in multiple gig jobs. Like it's all of these very different non-traditional employment situations that are like different on a person by person level. And our unemployment system does not really deal with partial unemployment. Like if you have three jobs and you lose one of them, if it's a certain percentage of your income, like maybe we should replace some of that. And like, it just doesn't handle those types of things.
1: And you know, this will get, I I see just even running in my mentions while I've been podcasting with you, there's tons of people yelling at me once again, about $2,000 checks saying, oh, there's people who are facing eviction, there's people facing, and like, it's all, 100% true. Like, there are lots of people in dire circumstances, but like, that's what unemployment insurance should be for, meeting the the urgent needs of people who lose their jobs. Um, I mean, we have an unemployment insurance system, but like, we need to make it good enough that we can really say it's taking care of that. I mean, you were talking about how long it takes people to get benefits. And like, I had a very frustrating experience getting a health insurance reimbursement thing. Like, I'm annoyed, but it's fine. But if you lose your job, like, you need your benefits. Now,
2: yeah, I mean, especially in a recession where like the layoffs were disproportionately low wage workers, workers of color who have less access to credit, who have less savings, who are less likely to be homeowners, who can take a home equity loan. Like, there's all these different compounding factors that are, you know, maybe unique to this recession, but not really. I mean, these were this like these types of jobs were also lost in the Great Recession, and I'm sure before that. And when you look at these types of things, like, I don't know, I couldn't like. I, I make a decent living. I live in a very nice apartment. Like I have parents who could help me, and I don't think I could wait one hundred and forty days for an unemployment payment to come through. Like I can't imagine if you're a if you work and live in Georgia and you make seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Like there's no way you could have afforded to wait one hundred and fifty days for your payments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So I mean, I think the message here is like Congress, like try try to fix this. Don't don't just put another band-aid on the system, but like let's like re- like UI is great, it's important, but it could be a lot better than it is.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think like there's there's a funding concern, there's an eligibility concern, there's a benefits concern, like a generosity concern, and then there's this big administration and financing concern that like even if we address the first three, like that fourth one is really 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 pivotal.
1: Right. Okay. I, I think uh, we, we will leave it there. Um, but thank you so much, Elizabeth Pancati, Employ America, which is a great operation overall um, on unemployment and, and several other uh, related topics. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our new producer, Eric Janakis. And uh, The Weeds will be back on Tuesday.
2: Thanks so much, guys.